And so for the next little bit of time, the four of us are going to attempt to speak to the beauty of who Christ is from an Old Testament prophecy. Each one of us is going to speak to one of the names over an Old Testament promise in Isaiah 9, probably a verse that a lot of you are familiar with. And we each got one, and we each get about eight minutes to tell you how good it is and how beautiful that name of Christ is. And so starting off tonight, Teresa Dodge is going to tell us about Isaiah 9-6, the promise for a wonderful counselor. This is my debut. I don't know how to turn it on. Anyway. Oh, keep it up? Well, anyway. So, apologies. I have to put this on. Yay for the older women in the room that need these. So, I, uh, we came here. This is not part of my eight minutes. Okay. We came here two, almost three years ago, next month, which is crazy. So, the median age really changed at that point. So, it's good to see other women in the room my age. Anyway, all right. Um, yeah, just hearing the music tonight and seeing some of those words, you know, in, the, in those Christmas hymns are amazing. You know, the, the theology in there. And it really drew me in. I've, I've been really nervous. If you saw my notes, and they do. Sorry. Closer to my mouth? Oh, most people tell me not to. Anyway. <laughs> Oh, it's like, shut up. <laughs> anyway, um, no, if you saw my notes, and they can behind me, it looks like there are bullet holes all over them, because it's just who I am. I can't write down my thoughts. They just come out. But anyway, here we go. Um, no, I do want to um, point us to the beauty of Christ, because the gospel in Christmas, that's what Christmas is about. <clears throat> so, the passage we're going through tonight is, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. That's what I'm going to talk about. But isn't it amazing when you read those uh, two verses before, it's like, okay, God's starting something here. Um, he's talking about a government and upon the shoulders of this child that's going to be born, this son that's going to be given, will be a kingdom, apparently. And so, um, but what I want to talk about is Wonderful Counselor. That's one of his names. He didn't say his name is Jesus. He said he's Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. <clears throat> so, anyway, um, in the context of this passage, we're in Isaiah and there are four chapters, and they're all about um, Isaiah delivering. He's being um, commended by God to take this word, write it down. This is what I have to say to the children of Israel at this point, those who are left. Um, he writes it down, and then he proclaims to them what is about to happen. And I just want you to know the atmosphere in which he's delivering this message is not one where it's like, oh, yeah, we love truth. Just lay it on us. That's not true. It is a very hostile environment for truth. And I know we think our culture is unreceptive, and it is, um, but how would you like to be Isaiah? You're actually, your job in life is to hear from God, pen the words, and then stand before the people and the leaders of Israel who were very sinful um, and say to them, this is what God says. So he's telling them um, a very terrifying um, message. Um, and it's exhausting for him. This isn't a great life, you know. If you read about the prophets, it's pretty, it's pretty hard life. Anyway, um, and, and you realize, too, when you study about prophets, like if it, if it weren't for God's kindness, they would just die because they're being met by God. He's speaking to them, um, and then the same is true for us. But so right here in these chapters of a terrifying um, prophecy, Right smack in the middle is this Isaiah 9-6. There's going to be a child. He's coming. He's going to be a wonderful counselor. So um, Isaiah has to say to the people, though, um, here's the gauntlet. It's being thrown down on you, Israel. God is done. He's, he's uh, 
spoken to you and you won't listen. So judgment is coming and God is about to remove his arm and let the king of Assyria, who is a very violent and vile person, along with his country, come in and destroy them and exile them. It's going to be, from this point on, from God, they're going to receive silence, and they're going to be separated. That's going to be the result of their sin, because they were so willful. And the interesting thing is, when, whenever this happens to a people um, in, the, in the Bible, to God's people, um, many people are swept up in that judgment, aren't they? There are always innocent people, more innocent. People. So it talks about widows and orphans will also be in that day judged. And, you know, I just think how terrifying that is. But isn't that the way sin is? Like if we get ourselves involved in sin, um, it sweeps other people into it. And they don't really get a choice. They just become part of the destruction of your own life. So, um, yeah, I just, it makes me wonder, you know, and always and ponder if, if I insist on sinning, you know, um, it's usually going to take me further than I want to go, and it's going to keep me there longer than I ever planned, um, because it'll in, be intoxicating to me. So anyway, so that's the situation we're receiving these words in. Um, yeah, the people of the time, they had their hearts set on uh, the wrong things. Uh, they loved themselves. They loved their own wisdom. Um, so their emotions and their desires were turned toward themselves and not toward God. Their reasoning, their minds were polluted with idolatry and self. And this is God. He's trying to speak to them, but they're seared in their, in their minds and in, in their hearts. So even though God's continually trying to um, teach them wisdom, he realizes they've cauterized themselves to the truth. They can't even hear it anymore. They don't care. They don't want it. And they don't believe him. They don't believe he's going to, you know, judge them, which is really weird because if you're reading the context, there's a lot of bad stuff going on. Um, you know, I'm thinking, you should listen. Um, put my glasses on. There you go. They're probably really dirty, so that's weird. But <laughs> so needless to say, mankind is in really big trouble, okay? And the exile that's about to ensue is going to be terrifying terrifying and it's not going to be pretty at all. So um, whenever I read Old Testament passages like this, you know, um, I just have to say, what in the world is going on? Why are they in this situation? What is God saying? What does God say about himself? Is he just mean? Nope. He's pretty fair, actually, you know, and so I'm, I'm having to ask myself those questions. What are they doing that I might do? You know, even if it's a little bit to a degree, um, what's the seed of it? What is the seed of the problem that they have, and how can I avoid it? They, you know, we're reading here that they refuse God's counsel and instructions. So um, that, number one, don't turn away from God's instruction. Um, so anyway, here in, in the passage in Obstinate People, we find this great hope that no matter how sinful mankind gets, or no, no matter how sinful I am, God's promise will be true. He is a God of goodness. He not only acts good, he is good. Good is his name. So, um, you know, it is his very nature to be good and to do good. We don't know how to do good without him. Um, so, and if it weren't so, Isaiah would be dead because he's talking to God. And when you see God, you usually fall down dead. So, um, so God in his mercy is speaking to him. So, um, whoops, I think I went too many pages. Nope. Anyway, yes. Okay, um, true to God's character, he throws them a lifeline. He never relents from his, his plan. He stays on task. He said this from the beginning, I'm going to... Um, be there for you. I'm going to get you out of this terrible situation you're in. And it's not just to Israel. It's going to be to all nations. A son is going to be born, and in the midst of the desolation, God will not forget his people. And there's going to be a news flash that that, that nation, which will be upon his shoulders, will be to all of us, us right here tonight. And it, his name will be Wonderful Counselor. So he is justly wonderful. Jesus Christ is. Um, 
You know, it's bizarre that God would make a plan like this, that God would send his son to earth to be born as a baby, um, to be fully dependent on a mother, to come so humbly into the world. That's probably not what we would do with our kids, right? I mean, (laughs) uh, but this is God's plan. It's an act of love to the world, and it was a wonder to all the angels and all the people that were in heaven already. It was surprise, and all of heaven was just, had their mind blown. Like, wait, what just happened, you know? And so you just think about the, um, the angels that appeared to the shepherds. Here's these shepherds. They're dirty. Nobody likes them. They're out living in the fields, doing a shepherd's job, taking care of these animals. And holy angels appear to them, and they say, what is in the name? This is my the way I'm going to say it. But that these angels meet these shepherds and say, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. They're just getting word of this, that God's coming into the world as a child, as a baby, and what he's going to do. They're hearing wonderful, full of wisdom is God. He sent his son into the world for mankind. Um, And as we see the life progression of Jesus, we're going to see a constant um, attendance of wonders in his life. We're going to see miracles. He's going to do things that are supernatural, very unnatural for man. And he does supernatural things because it's his very nature. Um, And he'll do work, and no one will ever be able to explain it completely. Um, They'll never be able to refute it. So whenever that happens, what do we do? We get mad and we call someone names. We say, no, we, we... reject you. But the mystery of godliness around his life and around his works will be unexplainable, and it still is today, right? When people hear this word, it's not always um, something they just jump right onto. Oh, yeah, Jesus is God and died for my sins. You know, it's hard to believe sometimes, but some people believe and some will run away. Um, You know, it's interesting when you think about Jesus' miracles. You know, he didn't do... um, dazzling things like, well, he did, but he didn't like blow the top off of a mountain and say, see, I'm God. He did very intimate things. Like the first thing he did, really, his first miracle was to go to a wedding. And when the wine ran out, he created wine that was better than any they had ever tasted. And it was at the, toward the end of the party. It was, it was him saying, my kingdom is coming And in my kingdom, there will be flourishing, there will be life, there will be celebration. Um, That first invitation to who he was, you know. And then we saw him put his hands on people who were considered dirty or unclean, like lepers. We saw him speak to people who were dirty and unclean, like prostitutes and tax collectors. Um, He spoke to them. He forgave them. They were changed. He fed people, he dignified the human race, and he was always speaking in doing these things. He was speaking about his kingdom and about his government and how he would govern. It's wonderful, right? That is part of the wonderful of Jesus. Um, Then the wonder in his death and resurrection, that confounds people, right? Now and as it did then. He died, okay, and then he came alive again. And people saw him and they talked to him. It was unbelievable. But the result of that was he was able, able to deliver himself from death and us from sin. That is wonderful. He's absolutely wonderful. And he's, he's a counselor, too, to us. When he came and when he comes into your life, he counsels you. Um, he was from all eternity, but he was here in the world. And he's here with you when you receive him. Um, He draws near to you, and he says to you, come, come and hear what my father has said from all eternity. I've been with him. We've been talking. I'm here to deliver God's wisdom to you. And the first bit of wisdom is for you to connect to God, for you to get rid of your trouble, um, the trouble that you have with God. Um, And he's he's going to show you the way out. Um, he counsels us freely. He doesn't charge us for that. He just does it all the time to all the children of men. 
He's offering it to everybody, but a lot of people won't take it. Like the children of Israel at the time, they didn't, they didn't heed it and take it. He also consults us in regard to our welfare. Like, how are you? How is your life? I care about you. I care about today. Um, and if we listen to those instructions from him, then our path will be straight. It will be lit. And we will also know he's on this path with me. And he will never leave me. And when I start falling off, he's going to grab me and get me up here. Sometimes, you know, you have to do that with your kids and they don't want to come back up too much um, so easily. And so we do the same sometimes, but he's never going to leave you and he's proving it here. So the other thing I thought about his counseling is I was telling Rebecca this after one of her Ephesians studies, I said, you know, I was just thinking, Jesus, wonderful counselor, also makes me think of legal counsel. Like we need legal counsel before God, right? He's going to judge us. And if I'm in trouble, I'm going to go hire legal counsel. But what's amazing about Jesus is I have this massive, huge sin problem, and he willingly came and represented me in front of the court of God. And so where I deserve to be guilty and judged, this counselor doesn't go in and cut a deal and make a bargain. He just goes in and says, I'll take the sentencing. You know, that's amazing. So he takes the sentence, and you walk away free. That's amazing. Um, so you have to ask yourself, first thing, wonderful counselor, ponder that. How does that make you feel, that he's our wonderful counselor? And, you know, as I was going through this and just thinking about different things, I thought, man, life is so exhausting, isn't it? There are just so many things in my personal life that are heavier loads. I got a rash this week. I don't know why. I'll tell you what. <laughs> The heavy load, you know, it hits you every time. You're like, I'm doing fine. I'm totally under control. I got this massive rash on my chest. I don't know what it is, you know. <laughs> That's weird. But, you know, I like to say weird things. Anyway. But you know how you always think you're in control? You're not. I need God's counsel. Like, so many things are coming in and out of my life, and I need wisdom. I need his counsel, and I need the relief and the calm that comes with it because it's more peaceful than I am. So um, anyway, we've got a lot of things to deal with, and I, I, uh, thinking of the wonderful counselor, if we accept that, that wonder and that counsel into our life, we can say like the psalmist did in Psalm 16, 7, I will bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night also my heart instructs me. It's because our hearts will be set on him, we'll be in wonder of him, we'll look at his life and just say, that was a different person. <laughs> he is unlike any of us, and he did great things. He'll draw near to me. Um, if I draw near to him, nearer to him, he'll, he'll pull me in. You know, and sometimes in our life, we just have to put our arms out, look up to the Father and say, take me up. Uh, you know, I need you. I want to draw near. He is, he is wonderful, and he will give us counsel. So do it. Take it. So as we transition, Rebecca gave me a little freedom to throw her under the bus. And I'm going to take it. <laughs> so if you see on the back of your pamphlet, it has our little, um, like, bios and stuff. Earlier this week, Rebecca texted and it's like, hey, what's your favorite hobby? What's your favorite Christmas movie? And I said for, you know, hobby, puzzling, I'm the crazy cat lady, whatever. And then for Christmas movie, I said, oh, Home Alone and It's a Wonderful Life. And then a little down the text, I, as a joke, said, oh, and let it be heard, my third favorite Christmas movie is Die Hard. Because everyone argues about how that's a, whether it's a Christmas movie or not. And then I get here and I look at the pamphlet. I'm like, Rebecca put Die Hard as my favorite Christmas movie. And I'm about to talk about Mighty God. <laughs> like, there's got to be 50 F-bombs in Die Hard. I'm like, all these women are not going to listen to me. So I was talking to my mom, and she said, well, at least they'll know you're a dirty, rotten sinner as you're up there. <laughs> so that's my disclaimer. My favorite Christmas movie is Home Alone. Just let that be heard. Okay. <laughs> Mix. Okay. Mighty God. He will be called Mighty God. 
In this prophecy about Israel's coming king, the listeners would have clearly understood that the phrase mighty God meant that the coming child would be divine, all-powerful, and holy. Many times throughout the Old Testament, before this prophecy, the Israelite God was referred to as mighty. And when Israel received this prophecy, many memories and stories of their mighty God passed down from generations would have immediately come to mind. So tonight, I want to remember the things that they would have remembered when they heard the phrase mighty God. And as we go through these, I want us to acknowledge how these are evidences of God's power and holiness. Okay, so number one, they would have thought of mighty God created the earth. Through the word, Jesus, God the Father spoke, and there was earth. When we walk outside this evening, and if it were bright out, and let's say we could see one square mile, we would see one 200 millionth of the earth. And that's just one planet in one universe. Mighty God created that. That's power. Mighty God created man. He designed us so that our hair goes here and our lungs allow us to breathe and these two round things let us see. Mighty God thought of, designed, and created all of mankind. So how is Mighty God powerful? Well, when his people needed protection, he parted a sea. That's pretty powerful. When his people needed food, God Almighty, overnight, provided bread and meat for over two million people. What power, what might, it's almost scary. And actually the might of God was supposed to instill a respect and a fear of God in the people of God. Here's what I mean. When the Israelites gathered around the mountain to receive the 10 commandments, they were to be put to death if they got too close to the base of the mountain that God's presence rested upon. God's presence is so holy that sinful man cannot be near it and live. When the Israelites were transferring the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the mercy seat of God, the oxen pulling the covenant, the Ark, pulling the Ark, stumbled. And so a man instinctively reached out his hand to steady the Ark and was immediately put to death by mighty God for his irreverence. The object that represented, didn't even contain, represented the presence of God was too holy for sinful man to touch. We have infinitely more evidences like these. We should read scripture and gawk at the power and the holiness of God. But that brings us to Christmas. Just who is this prophecy of mighty God about? Christ incarnate. What does that mean? Well, God, whose power and holiness are so clearly displayed in the scriptures, took on flesh. He was fully human and fully God. You may be saying, Kelsey, this is old news. I'm not going to tell you anything you don't already know tonight. I just want us to park here a little bit longer than we usually do. Though mighty God has no beginning or end, he's eternal. His time as a man did have a beginning. And where does man begin? Though they're in here, this belly right now is not all soft shell taco supremes and Arby's half pound roast beef sandwiches. (laughs) Humans start from a cell, a single cell called a zygote. And scripture leads us to believe that it was the same in the case of mighty God. In Mary's belly, that cell was fully God and fully man. At my seven-week ultrasound, baby Robeson looked like a gummy bear, a jelly bean, really. And in the case of mighty God, the son of God, that jelly bean was fully God and fully man. So we take more of a somber tone here. There was a season where God, the mighty God who did all of those miraculous things just mentioned before, chose to become dependent upon his creation. He depended upon a woman to eat 
so that he would grow in her womb. Mighty God, who designed the intricacies of a woman's reproductive system, was fed through the very placenta that he created. And then he was born. God Almighty was born as a helpless human baby. God Almighty, who protected his people by parting a sea for years, depending upon the feeble, sinful humans, two feeble, sinful humans for protection as he grew. All-powerful God, who fed his people from the dew of the earth, depending on two humans to feed him. Are you catching my point? In this Christmas season, we remember and celebrate that all-powerful, holy God willingly took on the fragile, dependent, pitiful form of human flesh. We were made out of dust, and mighty God became dust. And he chose to come, he chose to, come to us as a baby. He could have came to us as a 30-year-old man, but he didn't. He came as a helpless baby. Guys, this is miraculous. The mighty God who before was so holy that one would die if they got too close to the mountain his presence rested upon or if they touched the object that represented his presence, that all-powerful, holy God was held. One of my favorite songs of all time happens to be a Christmas song. It goes like this. Who would have dreamed or ever foreseen that we could hold God in our hands. The giver of life was born in the night, revealing God's glorious plan to save the world. And one day, because of what Jesus has done, we get to look forward to embracing, better yet, being held by our holy God. The irony is breathtaking. The limitless became limited. The all-powerful became weak. The all-knowing, the word of God learned to talk. The protector was protected. The provider was provided for. The holy of holies, though he didn't lose his holiness, he did take on the cursed flesh of a fallen creation. Why? Why did all-powerful, holy God, Take on our feeble, broken, gross flesh. Because he loves us. And to save the world. There are so many implications from this, but I want to leave us tonight with the simplest and I think the most impactful one. This Christmas, I want to marvel at mighty God and helpless babe. Mighty God who wore our flesh for 33 years. I want my eyes to be bigger this Christmas in awe. I want to say, Emmanuel, God with us, with weight. Jesus didn't come down to earth to bring us gifts in the same way that Santa Claus comes down from the North Pole. And as our eyes get bigger, as we appreciate what Christ has done for us, joy isn't just a decoration. Merry Christmas isn't just a greeting. But mighty God proves his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ took on the form of a man for us. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. He will be named Mighty God. For a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us. He will be named Everlasting Father or Eternal Father. So I guess we should just keep the ironies from Kelsey's talk coming. Do you see it there, guys? Do you see that irony? Isn't it weird that a child and a son would be called a father? And furthermore, as you've already heard, this promise from Isaiah is a messianic prophecy. That means it's a promise for Jesus. Well, wait a minute. Isn't that weird? Isn't Jesus supposed to be the son? 
Isn't this ironic? Isn't this confusing? When I realized this, that this is the talk that I was going to give, I sat there for a moment and thought, oh, darn it, I think I drew the short straw. I think that they got the cool talks, and I got this one where we have to be crazy deep and cerebral. Do we have to just be academic and sterile to understand what Isaiah was talking about here? Are you guys all waiting for seven and a half minutes of just tuning me out because I drew the short straw? While I thought it for a little bit, I don't think it anymore. And here's why. Here's what I've learned as I've looked at this text. Because while we do need help, at least I do, understanding the Trinity, we don't need help understanding the goodness of a father. Let me say this again. So while I don't think that, well, I don't think that we need help understanding how important it is to have a good father, I do think we need help often understanding a three-in-one God, the Trinity, the God, the Father, and, and Jesus, the Son, and then the Holy Spirit. It's so confusing to us at times how Jesus was actually, although he was the Son, was never created, and he was the Word at the beginning. He has been for all time. That can get confusing, but what's not confusing, what we intuitively know, guys, is that when there is a good Father around, things run well, Right? But conversely, where there is no father, where there is no good father, there is often a crisis. We all know this, and it feels somber. We know this in our own lives. We know this in the lives of the people around us. But do you know how else we all know this? Because we've all watched Home Alone. Think about it, guys. This movie is packed with deep theology. This Christmas classic begins where we have Kevin McAllister, a seven-year-old punk kid. The scene opens and he has attitude, right? Right away, we see that he is hard-hearted. He comes in and he's, um, he's rebellious and he's using his dad's fish hooks to make ornaments and he's tattling on his, is it Uncle, someone, who's that, Uncle Fred, Frank? Sure, Frank, you guys, okay. He's just, right, he's complaining. He's complaining about packing a suitcase, right? Right away, this is who Kevin McAllister is. See, Kevin has a dad in those opening scenes, but he doesn't really act like he has a dad. Kevin, because of his rebellion, is exiled to the third floor. Because of his bad attitude, he's sent to the third floor to sleep with his cousin Fuller. And as we all know, because he was out of sight, he was forgotten by his family and left home alone for Christmas. When Kevin awakes the next morning, he is living essentially like an orphan and all heck breaks loose. His wish has become true. He has no authority in his life. So we see him eating huge bowls of ice cream in front of really dirty movies, probably Die Hard. <laughs> He's using his brother's BB gun. He's sledding down the stairs. He steals a toothbrush. He's on the run from the law. But guys, the comedic turns incredibly serious when this fatherless crisis gets worse. Why? Because Harry and Marv, the wet bandits, have decided to rob his house. The impending intrusion on the suburban neighborhood looms large, and Kevin, little Kevin, is left vulnerable and defenseless. In a way, that's the context of Isaiah as well. <laughs> no, for real, for real. Listen, guys, the people of God are rebellious and they are hard-hearted. They have a father, but really they're not acting like they have a heavenly father. And so they are in a crisis, a fatherless crisis. And Assyria, the antagonist, the bad guy, is looming large on the horizon. Assyria is ready to break in steal, kill, and destroy. And that's when Isaiah promises them this. A child, a son will be given, and he will be called their everlasting, eternal 
father. But guys, it's important for us to see that actually this wasn't a new promise. Isaiah didn't just make this up on the spot to kind of make them feel better, but this was a promise from the very beginning of the Bible for, from our heavenly father. This promise came from our heavenly father on page three of our Bibles. It was a promise that said, I as father will not abandon my family in their time of need. Despite my family's rebellion and their hard-heartedness, I will not leave my children defenseless. He promised to send a son, a son to rescue his children, a son to redeem, a son to restore. And Isaiah's promise became a reality when the Son of Man came to earth, bringing heaven down to us. So this son came, and and much like a natural son, he would bear the image of his father. He would look like God the Father, but in a very supernatural way. This son would make the invisible visible, the unseen seen as he showed the world what God looked like. It's like saying, you want to see God? Then look to Christ. Christ will show you what the father looks like. Guys, think of the stories that are familiar to us from the New Testament. Think of the ways that Jesus so often acted like a father. When he welcomed children to come near, when he defended the women, when he cared for the vulnerable, when he defended the weak. This is how God the Father loves. Look at how Jesus cared and protected those around him. And as that son of God would grow up, he would actually explain this mystery that we find in Isaiah And John 14 in particular, there's lots of good hints there that will help us make sense of this confusing phrase that the son and the child will be called everlasting father. In John 14, we hear Jesus answering some questions from his very inquisitive disciples. And he said to them, oh, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. The father is in me and I am in the father. If you know me, you know the father. In fact, the only way to the Father is through me. So here we are again with this three-in-one God, this kind of confusing concept. But here we see that the three-in-one God, although it's, it's three distinct persons, they are completely unified. But guys, right there, this is not where it lands. It does not just stop in our brains. Because further down in John 14, Jesus would continue. And he said, to his audience, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Do you hear how paternal Christ, the Son of God, sounds? He says to them, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And this is where this name, this third name from Isaiah brings us hope. Ladies, I don't know how dark your backdrop is right now. I don't know if it's a lot like Isaiah chapter 8, full of gloom, despair, distress. I don't know what your biggest hurt is right now, your anxiety. I don't know what that Addiction is that you just can't get over. I don't know how broken, how many relationships are for you. And I don't know how long it's been hard. But what I do know is that a promise was made for you. And a promise was kept for you in such darkness. You, the woman living in gloom, the woman living in distress, are not left as an orphan. Kelsey invited us to look up and out and to marvel this Christmas. Perhaps our invitation from this name is an invitation for us to then look inward and to really ask ourselves, do we believe this? Do we really believe that Christ who has the character of an eternal father, has come for us. Do we live as if we are no longer orphans? 
And here's what I mean, guys, two examples. Sometimes in my life, I act like I don't have a heavenly father. So often I find myself in seasons where I'm just like Kevin, where I would rather have autonomy than a relationship with my heavenly father. I would rather cast off the fatherhood of God or maybe keep him at an arm's length because I don't want him getting any closer to where he makes me feel weak and vulnerable and exposed. And so I keep him at a safe, professional, religious distance and I act as if I do not have a father. Nope, I can do it my own way, God. I've got this. I can do it my way at my own pace and get the results that I think are good. But I think sometimes we find ourselves in seasons where we feel forgotten or unseen by God. And maybe that's where you are tonight. Maybe you fear that because of your rebellion or just your bad attitude has disqualified you from the care of a heavenly father. Maybe you have just turned down the temperature spiritually for so long now. You've been lukewarm for so long. You've been comfortable. You've just been apathetic for so long that you could not imagine that a loving, eternal father would again care for you, welcome you near to him. Ladies, if one of those is true to even the smallest extent tonight, in your life or in mine, then we are in a crisis. Then we are in a fatherless crisis. And here's why that is bad. Because if we are not living day in and day out, like we have the heavenly father that we have then we then put it on ourselves to protect ourselves, to provide for ourselves, to promote ourselves. In what ways does that describe you? Do you go through your days protecting yourselves, providing for yourself, holding all things together as if it's all on you, wearing every single hat, balancing every single plate, being all places at once? Protecting, providing, and promoting yourself as if you don't have a father who cares for you. Ladies, it leaves us exhausted. It leaves us weary and run down. But when we believe this, when we believe these words of Isaiah, that a promise has been made and a promise has been kept for us, everything changes that Christ has come and that he has the character of a loving father changes absolutely everything for us. And so our invitation is to come to him like a child and let him love you. Hello, everyone. I don't have any funny thing to say before I start. <laughs> Although I did notice I didn't have a hobby on there on my bio because I'm kind of busy. Um, but anyways, so our last name today that we're going to cover is The Prince of Peace. This name we may hear a lot around the holiday season. And for me, it was one I quickly realized I knew very little about. Um, when we were talking and discussing preparing for this wonderful time, the Prince of Peace grabbed my attention and held on. So I dove into scripture after scripture, searching out the Prince of Peace. I believe illustrations are an amazing way to capture a subject. And so today we're going to look to the eagle. Eagles are one of the most famous birds, at least maybe for Americans. We see them as an American symbol. We see them as skillful hunters with powerful wings and powerful talons. Maybe right now you're imagining the eagle swooping down over the lake and grabbing the fish right out of the water with its talons. But of all the things I have learned about eagles, one captured me over the past couple weeks. You see, God gave them an amazing ability that when a storm is coming, they can actually sense a storm is coming. And not only that, but God gave them the instinct to fly towards the storm. They pick a high branch and sit there and wait for the storm. And when the storm comes, they start flying. 
and they set their wings in a way that they actually benefit from the storm and the winds of the storm raise them up to safety out of the storm. Ladies, me and you, we do not have to look very far for a storm. In my own personal life or in yours or even in the world around us, when I first started studying the Prince of Peace, I, like most people, went directly to the Google Dictionary and, <laughs> and found that, you know, peace is a noun and it is, can have several meanings like freedom from disturbance, it can be a state or a period without war, or as a verb, it can be something you say to your friends when you say, peace out. Well, this is not the Prince of Peace I was searching for. <laughs> this name was penned by Isaiah 700 years before Jesus walked on the earth. The prophecy, which we have heard, was to encourage those around him that were facing imminent danger that someday a prince was coming, a prince of peace. Not someone would, that would just experience peace, but a prince that would reign in peace. What does that mean to reign in peace? Well, once again, if you go to Google, reign is a, reigning is a verb. It is an action. It is like holding a royal office or to rule would be to reign. So what would this mean in relation, relation to Jesus? Well, as I studied this, well, on a side note, if you're ever looking for a word study, peace is a good one. It is found some 329 times across scripture, and 30 of these times are found right here in Isaiah. Now, back to what we're talking about. Um, it was really awesome. Um, how does Jesus, being the Prince of Peace, give me peace? How does him being the Prince of Peace give you peace? Well, just like the eagle, God has provided a way for you and I to have access to peace all the time. Ahead of the storms, in the storms, and at all times. And it is not just any peace, but the Bible in Philippians 4 calls this peace a peace that passes all understanding. Hmm. So this peace comes directly from God and through Jesus Christ. That when I'm facing something, Philippians 4, 6 says that I, there's a way to face it without having anxiety. Hmm. Let's find out what it says. Philippians 4, 6 through 7 says, Do not be anxious for anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition and with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. For me, in a very practical way, this tells me that when the winds begin to come or I sense a storm coming, that I get to set my gaze and I get to set my mind and my heart like the eagle setting its wings. I set those things on Jesus. And then I bow in prayer and thanksgiving. Having Jesus rule as the Prince of Peace means that he came to bring you peace. Have you ever thought about that? A peace, and this peace is not just for the storms we're talking about. In fact, it is a peace that makes peace between you and God. And we call this the gospel of peace. You see, God sent his very own son, which you've heard already, into the earth 
And he was born into a manger. And that brings us right now, right here. We're celebrating the birth of Jesus. He came to live a perfect life that we could not. And he willingly died and shed his blood to cover our sins. And three days later, he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death so that we can have full access to the throne of grace. So that when I bow in prayer and thanksgiving, I am bowing before the throne of grace. The gospel of peace is the reigning prince of peace. The prince of peace has done everything so that you can draw near. You simply need to ask and seek and scripture has a wonderful way of talking to us and we about this picture. Isaiah penned it later in Isaiah 40, and it captures our illustration. In Isaiah 40, 31, it says, But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary, and they will walk and not be faint. Ladies, Jesus is our wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and the prince of peace. I'm going to close this in prayer, and then we're going to move on to some worship time. So if you would bow your heads with me. Heavenly father, wonderful counselor, mighty God everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. We come before you as your daughters and we thank you and praise you for all that you have done. We boldly approach the throne of grace, covered in your robe of righteousness and with our sins wiped away with your blood. And we say thank you and praise you for your son. In Jesus' name, amen.